This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Sarah Ford. How you doing, Sarah? I'm good. Sarah, thanks for joining me on the show. We're going to talk about uh, human factors and uh, the cognitive part of user experience today. You have some pretty interesting stories for us. Before we get started, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you're working on these days, and um, you have a pretty interesting work history as well. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, I'm back at Microsoft a third time, as I like to tell people. Uh, third time's a charm. Uh, yeah. So uh, for those who don't know my uh, my my background, I'm a, a college hire to uh, to uh, Microsoft. Worked on the Visual Studio team and then was the PM of Coplex. And I was up in Redmond for about 10 years. And they, there was an opportunity to train with my grandmaster down in San Jose. There was an opening to be an evangelist. And so I had just gotten my uh, second degree black belt and I had, I had to go for it, especially because uh, the weather in Seattle was just starting to get to me. I'd like to tell people, hey, I gave it a good shot. You know, I gave it, you know, <laughs> nine, nine, 10 years. I gave it a try. Uh, so I moved, uh, moved down. Uh, once I got to Silicon Valley, I, you know, tried different things because that's just how it is in Silicon Valley. And yeah, uh, worked at various uh, companies. I also went back to, to Microsoft uh, a second time for um, on the Mac PowerPoint team. And yeah, and during that time, I went to started going to grad school uh, because, again, as fate would have it, I asked the 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 UX consulting company that we worked with on Coplex, like, hey, uh, I really want to understand like your engineering processes, like how do you come up with these designs? How do you do usability studies? Because what everything that you've been giving us for for Coplex was phenomenal with improving the the overall UX of the site. As a PM, I want to have your knowledge. Where do I go? And they had no idea which part of California that I had moved to. And they said, oh, you know, there's a San Jose State. They have a human factors program. And I, I lived a mile down the street. And I'm like, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, you, like, <laughs> it's that's like just, yeah, it's fate. I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check this out. So I went to, they have like a, um, mostly an evening program. So I did that. And then I decided after working in a Mac PowerPoint uh, for a couple of years, I realized, you know, I, I really miss DevTools. I really miss being technical. And I, again, I got uh, later on, I joined GitHub and was at GitHub for um, just shy of a, a couple of years. And then, uh, I, yeah, uh, and then an opportunity came along to, uh, with uh, Microsoft, like again, third time's a charm. And I'm finally getting my, my wish of having, working for a team based in Redmond, but being able to work remotely in the sunlight in California. So I've now, as of uh, July, returned to Microsoft third time and I'm on the Azure Identity team or specifically Azure AD B to C. And yeah, it took me a little bit to memorize the, the alphabet. I'm like, wait a minute, what were those letters again? The first time I heard it. But yeah, it's uh, uh, it's all slowly starting to you know make sense uh, for 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 good and for bad when you can memorize just like acronyms like that. Um, but yeah, so that's my uh, that's my work history. So you're right now you're working on um, not user experience per se, but uh, kind of the cognitive. Um, processes that happen behind, you know, behind user experience and uh, you're using that to help improve products? So my day job is uh, to improve the, the developer experience when using Azure AD B2C, for example, like as a, a new person coming in and ramping up, what are all the things, all the questions that I have, what can we do to improve documentation, samples, uh, how do we build community? Uh, things like that, and also using everything I learned about uh, about GitHub and mm -hmm. playing that forward. 
but in my kind of like my side hobby, side project in a way has been um, carrying on like the thought, the stuff that I learned from uh, grad school, which was kind of like the cognitive side of like, hey, what goes wrong when we're writing our own dev tools? Like what goes wrong when we're trying to explain um, concepts to, to other folks? Like what are these... Uh, unconscious biases that we have that if you're it's, if you're not aware how that you don't know what you don't know so if you can't articulate your knowledge then how can you explain you know explain concepts like what is going on when specifically with dead tools uh it's just because that was my background with uh when i started uh going to grad school and everyone in the in orientation on day one had a uh, psychology background and they all wanted to go into either UX research or UX design. And when they get to me, it's like 30 people in orientation that day. And they get to me and I'm like, oh, I want to make developer tools usable. And everyone just turns around, like looks at me like, what? I was like, no, I actually do not want to be a UX researcher. And I don't want to be a UX designer. And people are like, why are you here? <laughs> it's like, because it's like someone needs to really like like going like anything i could do will be, just be like a net positive to to the overall de developer community if we can do just anything one percent two percent i mean anything will just be a, a a um a positive change and uh yeah and just having worked on coplex and then having to to go to github and i do have one other i should i should add this to my bio just moving forward i am the only person in the world that can say i've started an open source project coaching site at one company and helped shut it down at another <laughs> so i have like this weird niche knowledge and i want to put it to, to use so yeah so in my my nights and weekends i try to think about i'd like to read I like to read research papers about IDEs and, you know, stuff like that about like, okay, what is happening in the world of uh, UX that we, you know, what can we do? What can I apply to my day job just to make overall developer experiences better? And uh, when you were going to school, you, uh, what program was it again you took to learn this? Yeah, something called human factors. Now, it's even better because every place else in the world besides the United States will refer to this program as ergonomics. And I about fell out of my chair when, I, when the UX consulting firm was like, hey, you should go and study human factors slash ergonomics. And I'm like, wait, time out. What on earth does the, uh, the study of office furniture setups have to do with making software usable? And they kind of like, explained a little bit of the backstory, which was, now, back in World War II, the uh, the army was having trouble with uh, with um, so much human error with like uh, with pilots and tank drivers. Like things were just like like things were just there was just so much human error. And so they bring they brought in army psychologists psychologists to study the humans. Like, hey, why are these people like making all this error? And the psychologist came back and it's like, actually, it's not the people. This this thing is unusable. It's just so poorly designed, no one can figure this out. And that's how like human factors started. So it was actually ergonomics started in like, or usability started in the physical world, which kind of, you know, makes sense. And then HCI, human computer interaction, it's actually a, like an offshoot or a subset of uh, human factors. And I mean, again, you could, it depends on which lens you're looking through. Like there's other ways you can study um, HCI, like from a cognitive science perspective, or from like I like um, it, um, versus just you know human factors, but from from an ergonomics point of view, like how do I make this usable? Then yeah, then you can say that uh, ACI is a subset of human factors. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that you know design isn't just about making something uh, pretty or attractive, but making it usable. And there's a lot of science. Uh, it, behind all of that, and it has to do a lot with um, the way people work. Right. Yeah. I think the thing that really blew my mind was our first, my first, one of my first classes. I had to take a bunch of undergrad courses because I had zero background in psychology and had zero background in um, um, industrial design and like how do you physically design shapes out of like you get like a you go to michael's a craft store and you buy these foam boards and you have to make objects out of, like usable objects like i don't know like a tv remote or the pro or the, the the problem we were given or the task we were given for the semester was to make a thermostat for like a, a house or an apartment 
And it's like, oh, how hard can this be? And as soon as I had to lay out physical buttons on a thermostat, it, it like blew my mind because, you know, for my entire life, all I have done is software ergonomics. And then here I am applying ergonomics to like a physical device that it was just, I was like a deer in headlights. It was just like, wow, <laughs> I, I had no idea of this world. Of course. Yeah. This makes so much more like a sense of like, not sense. It was just more of like stretching me out of my comfort zone of like, oh, I've never even considered, you know, like how the buttons would feel in the dark or it's just like, and then also when you have to, you can't just like control Z, control V, undo, redo, whatever. You have to like physically redo buttons. It, it, it was just mind boggling. Yeah, that's my pet peeve. I have a couple devices at the house that the controllers for those things are impossible to navigate in the dark because the buttons don't have any feel of, you know, which one is which. So <laughs> I think the fire fire TV stick is like one of the worst ones. Like I, I'm always hitting home instead of back or something like that. And it's just irritating. So it's, uh, it's an interesting problem solving conundrum to be in. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite a bit different, like you said, than uh, software that's on a screen. But then again, some things are relatable in that respect where, uh, you know, you have to deal with uh, people that use applications differently, you know, people that have visual impairments and things like that. So there's a lot of deep thinking that has to occur to, to get things just right. Yeah, it, it just felt like kind of like when you see like basketball players, for example, and they're doing their warm ups and they're using like they're dribbling with two basketballs, which you would never do in the game. But it's like they stretch their skill sets to be able to do these unusual and more, much more difficult tasks so that when they're in gameplay, it's much easier for them to like switch hands or do other things. So it's kind of like training harder than you actually would play. And I thought that was kind of like, it, it felt like that. It felt like training for software usability by doing mm -hmm. things in the physical world because it just made you consider things that you might not have ever thought of uh, for for the like yeah for the software world. So these you know creating physical things were kind of the uh, some of the first projects you encountered. What was your master's project like? So my my master's project actually turned out to be writing a software software application, which at the time I didn't know uh, I could get away with as actually for my master's project for uh, for human factors. I was originally going to. Um, um, yeah, actually, I was originally originally going to do a project with PowerPoint. I wanted to study um, audience satisfaction, how it related or correlated to uh, the amount of animations on the slide, transitions and animations. And I had like this like grand plan, and they always warn you, no, 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 don't like do. Um, like a grand plan for your, or, or don't try to like, you know, uh, go for the moon on, uh, shoot for the moon for uh, your master's project, just get the degree. And I'm like, oh, come on, I'm on a PowerPoint team. I need to like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do, do two things at, at once. I, I, it'd be really cool to see if, um, how uh, like audience satisfaction is, um, um, is related to like, like, the amount of animations or slideshow transitions. So my thought was like, I would have two groups. One would get one presentation based on just uh, like the, um, with tons of animations and then the, or, or maybe tons of transitions. And the other group would be like the neutral group and they get it with just like plain text. What I entered a world of, which I, I now have a deep, deep appreciation for anyone who does any sort of uh, research, is you have to control nuisance variables. You have to control, okay, well, is it, how do you know if it was the animations and not the content of the presentation? Like it starts getting into these like interesting nuance things of like, you have to think about, okay, well, how, how many people did you get? Were these people, um, relatively of the same type of group, like were they all college students? Were they all working professionals? Like, because you have to control for all these variants. And uh, and I realized, wait a minute, I think I might have been off more than I can chew. Because you also have to back it up <laughs> with did. research literature. You have to go and say, oh look, I copy and pasted this particular PowerPoint presentation. Let's just say from someone else's research, 
and I'm just making this one twist on it. And of course, I, I was having a hard time finding uh, someone that had done something similar to this that would act. And then you also like might have the perfect presentation, but is it relatable to the audience that you're able to, or the, the um, I forget what it's called, but like your, your, your sample size, your, your participants, you know, to, um, to, to do the research for, like, for example, you might have a perfect presentation on, um, on whales, but if for college students who could care less, they're just doing this because their professor is making them because they're in freshman, um, psych 101, you know, is it really going to be relatable or they're just going to fall asleep? You know, something it's, it's just interesting. Like, yeah, do you really have something that's meaningful? And after I realized I bit it off a bit off more than I should chill, I realized, okay, maybe I should take a step back. And I talked to my uh, kinesiology professor. Uh, again, this is like, like, what on earth have I gotten myself into that I'm now taking a course on, and this was required. And so this is like my, my, my freshman semester, I'm, or not freshman, my first semester, I am taking all these psychology undergrad courses like cognition. I'm like, what is cognition? And everyone turns and looks at me like, like what, like, you don't even know what the, the, the core, it's like, it would be like, what's a compiler and you're in compilers. And so I'm like, what is cognition? And they're like, it is the study of the brain. I'm like, Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm also taking, um, what's called motor learning. So it's the study of like, if, like the way I describe it is if I see a water bottle on the shelf that I've never seen before, like a different size, a uh, uh, Coke can or whatever it is, um, talking rain, whatever. And let's just say it's a different size or whatever. And I've never seen the size before. How do, how does my brain know to send the right motor commands or motor programs down to my hand to pick up that bottle correctly? And that's kind of like what, what motor learning is. And so we, um, it was a, like a really excellent professor, a really excellent course. Um, and uh, I learned really early in my career that when you meet people that really are excellent in their craft and, and really excellent in what they do and passionate about for their, for their field, you follow them, you, you try, you figure out a way to work with them because even if it doesn't seem relevant to your, um, directly to your own craft, you will always pick up something from that experience with that person that you will be able to apply to, to your own or to play it forward. And I went to her and I said, Hey, uh, um, I kind of bit off more than I can chew. Imagine that. And, uh, I'm looking for a master's project and she, uh, and I said, I'm really, really interested given my, you know, martial art, um, and sports background. I'm really interested in the, the contextual, um, interference. And I have to be honest, I, I hope she never hears this, <laughs> this story one day, but <laughs> she really, she really loves, um, contextual interference, uh, as like her, her site. And then, yeah, what the hell is, <laughs> what, what is contextual interference? It's, um, it's basically like, how, how do you, how do you acquire skill? Like, how do you not just acquire, but how do you um, get better and better at a skill. Like I was saying before, like the basketball players, they start off dribbling with one ball and next thing you know, they're dribbling with, with two basketballs at the same time. And like, you can't just give someone a, a novice and say, dribble two basketballs. It's going to be terrible. But, but say that you have someone that has been, okay, I've been dribbling with one basketball. How do I get going with two basketballs? So you would have different types of um, programs to get them up and running or like a baseball player. They like, they can hit 50 mile per hour pitches, but how do you get them up to 90 miles per hour so that they can, you know, take a shot for the major leagues. And so this idea of contextual interference is just the idea of you're changing the environment in such a way that you're optimizing learning. And yeah, I could speak a lot about that, but anyways, I knew it was a soft spot for her. And I knew if I pitched an idea, no pun intended, but if I pitched an idea <laughs> about um, using contextual interference for my master's project, she would not be able to say no. <laughs> so that is literally what happened. She was like, I, I, I can't, I'm not supposed to take on any more students, but I, I, I like this idea. I can't say no to contextual interference. So yes, I will work with you. And uh, so I wanted to study, uh, so I was going to put together like the most vanilla, you know, research proposal because, hey, I've learned my lesson. And right. uh, the way that they used to study modal learning or the way that they do still to this day study modal learning is there's a classic um, experiment where you use a physical device that was built in like the 1960s, where there's a light that goes around in a circle and you use a stylus to try to track the light. 
And the reason why they do this as an experiment is because it's, um, it's a, what they will call a novel task. Like it's a new task that you've never seen before. So you trace the ball around in the, with the, like with the pen. So it's, so they can see how quickly you can ramp up. And also it doesn't take that much time to ramp up. So that's why it's, uh, it's really great. You can train, you can change like the size of the, the little, um, of the, the radius of the circle, the target size, you could make it go faster or slower. So they get, they get to do their contextual interference, um, research that way. And, uh, she again, as fate would have it, um, um, when I told her that's the, what I wanted to study, she's like, I just threw out these machines yesterday because they had been sitting like <laughs> unused for I forget how many years or whatever. And uh, she was like, okay, I'm never going to use this again. I'm just going to throw it away. And here I come the very next day. And so she was just absolutely shocked and uh, that she had just thrown it away. And I'm like, it, and then she's like, well, maybe there's a software application out there you can use. I was like, okay. And then I, so I found one, but it reminded me of like Windows 3.1 days. I mean, it was just a Windows 95. I'll get a little more credit. Windows 95 days. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to use this. I'm going, God, I'm such an overachiever. I'm going to write my own. <laughs> and you know what? And so, um, um, I'm like, you know what? Why even, why stop at like a mouse? Let's write it as a connect app. And I put together a quick little prototype and I sent it to our and I got three emails within 10 minutes. And anyone who's ever gone to grad school, you know, you're usually begging for time from your professor. And here I got three replies in 10 minutes. So I knew I was onto something. And uh, so the, you know, the professor, again, 35 years of studying kinesiology of like how muscles work in the, in the, in the human body. And uh, she's like, you need, to, you need to make this proprietary. And I'm like, no, we're gonna open source it. <laughs> And, and this is why we're going to open source it, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so she, she, like, <laughs> she entered the world of software engineering with me. So yeah, that's how my, uh, my project came to be. And so basically I wrote, um, I basically wrote a connect app that does, like you use your hand to follow a ball around in a circle. So I call it the ultimate wax on, wax off type of experiments. And I yes. played with this thing for like a year. I worked on it, I tweaked it, um, um, you know, and yeah, yeah. And then, uh, uh, and, and, and then um, I was originally going to like do the research experiment, but uh, she, um, she said that just doing the project itself would be enough to, to, um, to justify a, uh, a master's my, my, for my master's project, just doing the application, because it would be basically, I would be introducing a method, a quote unquote, a new method into uh, a method of research into the research literature that someone else could pick up and run with. And I was like, hey, oh, hey, last work, I finally nice. learned my last thing. You mean less work? I will take it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that is how I, uh, the story of how my master's project came to be. And did you run into any snags with that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, just a couple. Um, the first snag was, um, I'm trying to, uh, this is very relevant to how I'm spending right now my nights and weekends, uh, is I have just like this weird mental block when it comes to, um, MVVM design patterns. It's like, I totally get code behind. I mean, I totally get, um, um, the not using code behind using, uh, commanding. I totally get using uh, data binding. Data by is awesome. Uh, I have more stories about data binding, but, but what I have a mental block it with is containers and dependency injection. It's like, it's like, I haven't had anyone really like give me over this, this, this weird mental block that I've had for like 10 years of like, well, how did the different views talk to each other? And it doesn't matter how hard I try. I, I always fail and end up doing code behind, which, you know, okay. Hey, you know what? It works. Okay. Uh, you know, such as life. Okay. Okay. No, life goes on. Um, it's not the end of the world, even though I keep trying. And so the first six months, um, I feel like I'm like confessing my developer sense here. <laughs> I, I worked and did it all in code behind and this, the app was just so slow. It was starting to get unreliable. And I'm not so much saying that it was a code behind, but it just, it made it, um, I got ahead of myself. It's like, 
it doesn't matter how many years I've been doing, I've been like a product manager, like what, um, or a program manager for like 10 years or whatever. It's like, anytime you put me in front of a keyboard, it's like my inner developer becomes free. And it's just like, I just want to write and I write code and it, yeah, it's like, I, I can't, my inner PM just like, like has zero control over my inner dev. Um, and so I had this thing, it was really clunky and, uh, it was just a ton of code and, uh, uh, and I wasn't sure where the performance issues were coming from or anything like that. And I reached out for help and Jerry Nixon, um, is a godsend. He came in and he, he actually had like a prototype working, um, with like the animation of like a ball going around a circle in the designer, in the designer at design time <laughs> in 30 minutes. I was just oh, wow. like literally in shock. I was like, it took me like two months to get here. Uh, cause I, 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 what I've been told from various people and various projects that I'm working on is that I, I try to do too much on my own. Like I keep rewriting things. Like people are like, oh, what game engine do you use? And I'm like, what do you mean game engine? <laughs> oh, well, how are you I doing the timer? <laughs> and I was like, I just wrote my own timer. Oh, I wrote my own game engine. I didn't even know. <laughs> so, so anyways, so Jerry gave me, like, gave me the framework to, to get out of like, kind of like the, the mess I got into. And, uh, so I kind of, again, developer confessions here, um, rewrote the app, but based on what Jerry's framework was so that I could at least roll out like any performances where the, but the performance issues that were coming, where they were coming from, at least I could catch them early. Um, um, I can't remember, I think it was just, I don't think it had any, I'm, I'm sure I, I, I can't remember the, the exact details, but he definitely gave me some suggestions uh, to to help get this this thing going. And then I finally, 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 like it is like the week of um, like my my last week, and this is kind of like the sign off day of uh, like you have your project working. And then the researcher who's a kinesiology student, so she's going for her, you know, I think it was undergrad um, degree in kinesiology, uh, because she wants to go into, uh, physical therapy or occupational therapy. And so she's going to use this, this app and she goes, she goes to sit down and to start to, like to use it. And she just like, I have no idea how to use this thing. And like, like I'm sitting there watching. So remember I've been doing three and a half years to learn how to do usability studies and how to do proper UX design. And I have made this like monstrosity <laughs> of a software oh, application no. because all I've been doing is focusing on making it work. I, I never got around to like, oh, how do I make this usable? And uh, um, yeah, so I uh, watching her, it, it was just absolutely shocking <laughs> watching her uh, um, try to figure out how to use like the like recently I've gone back and looked at it and like what was I even thinking? And, uh, so she's like, the <laughs> menus don't make any sense. And, and so she starts describing to me kind of like quote unquote, her inner world or AKA her mental model of like how the app should be working. And I'm like, Oh, why, what was wrong? Like, why didn't I think of this? And then I had this like, like huge light bulb moment of like, wait a minute. Now I get it. I didn't design it for the end user experience. I designed this because this was the best way for me to test the app. And, and that's when it all clicked. And that's why I now have this like little pet project of mine of like trying to like, like let people know like, Hey, this is my, um, my, my thesis or what would you call it? What do they call it these days? What are the kids calling it these days? A hypothesis, a hypothesis of like why dev developer tools are so unusable. And it's because I think that we're not actually designing for um, end user experiences as much as we think we are. I mean, case in point, I'm getting a master's degree in this and I basically got my master's degree because I made a project inaccessible or in unusable. Um, but uh, irony aside, I think it was just, I became so blinded in a way or so biased towards my own uh, subconscious needs of being able to verify my code that I ended up making this unusable app. Fortunately, uh, I just gave them really good instructions and uh, they were not holding me to the standard of like making sure that it was usable as I was <laughs> able to graduate. So yeah, I didn't have really to change good. anything too, too, too much. I, I feel so bad. I feel so bad for anyone else to use this thing. But, uh, but I learned a lot and that's why I just feel like, okay, I, I'm going to play my guilt forward of trying to tell everyone, Hey, these are the mistakes I made and some of the, like the, the blind spots to look out for, um, since those people had to suffer using this app. 
Yeah, I think that's an important story, though, because, you know, as developers, we tend to build things how either uh, we perceive someone will use them. So we, we kind of have the stereotype of what the um, end user is. And then uh, the other side of the coin is we build things how we think we would use them. And uh, in both of those scenarios, usually the end result isn't ideal. And yeah, I will say uh, data binding made it a lot worse because I realized, wait a minute, instead of just having one mainstream scenario of for like, to, which would have been way better off if I just had one, hey, this is the experiment you can you can run. I thought, well, data binding makes it so easy to configure all these options. Why not give them like a Swiss army knife of options? And therefore they get like 50 different <laughs> experiments instead of two different experiments. And so I basically went from giving them a can opener that you would like buy at like a, you know, a grocery store or whatever to open cans. I basically gave them a Swiss army knife. And so what, why are you having so much problems <laughs> opening a can opener? No, 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 don't use that weird like thingy that punch holes in leather to, to try to open up the can opener. You're, you're supposed to use this other blade that's hidden in the backside. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's like, honestly, what, like one of the other things I ran into was like, oh, just give them all the options. Yeah, th this happens a lot in like uh, corporate software, right? You have these massive dashboards for uh, doing reporting or, or, you know, that type of activity within this large organization. And I think we're starting to learn a lot in the corporate dev world from consumer apps that you'd find on like an iPhone or something where, you know, people are used to these very simple user interfaces. I mean, you look at uh, Apple hardware in itself, it's, you know, like they, they strive to get things down to like one button to do anything and everything and simplify as much as possible. And, uh, you know, us as developers, we can, we can handle some pretty complex things and we start to forget that, um, you know, new users to an app or something that we're building don't have the same context or um, awareness of what's happening within the system that we do. Right. And that was uh, another thing that my kinesiology professor really stressed uh, to us in my first semester taking the middle learning course was just because something is complex doesn't mean it can't be made usable. And I, and so after she, once she said that, I was like, yeah, you're right. And uh, I think about now, like all the times I've ever heard people say, you know, like dev tools, well, dev tools are too complex to be made usable. And it's like, no, 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 no. There might be training involved, but you still want it to be made usable by the person who's been trained, you know, to be able to like write a software application or like, like, you know, um, Photoshop, I've never really learned Photoshop, but that doesn't mean that if I don't take a couple of courses on how to like, what is it that I'm trying to achieve when I'm trying to do things with Photoshop that the application itself can't be made usable. Or the, the analogy that I, I, I also like to use is like, when you think about, I don't know, like, like things in medicine, like anesthesiology, which it's like, I have, um, and I bring this up because I remember one of the textbooks showed an image uh, from like decades ago of what the UI or like the, the computer system was set up to look like for an anesthesiologist. Yeah, yeah again, decades ago. And it just like, like burned in the back of my retina of the story about <laughs> like, look, like these people, like again, just like with pilots and tank operators, you know, it's not that they're not skilled. They know what they need to do. They know what they want to do. It's just, are we actually designing it to meet their needs? So it's like, do I know anything about anesthesiology? Oh, far from it. However, I do know that I want those tools to be made as usable as possible. And so a lot of human factors actually studies, um, it started off in aviation, like a lot, like a lot of the textbooks are all, almost all aviation based. And then a lot of people go into like medical research and, and like making medical tools uh, are usable. That was not something that I went, went to because I have like more of an interest in, in sort of aviation, air traffic control, those types of things. But I will just never forget that image of like, yeah, like, like just because it's complex to us, not or just because it's complex in general doesn't mean it can't be made usable. Yeah, compilers are complex, but we use them all the time. We want the compilers to give us meaningful error messages. We want them to be transparent. And yeah, so um, yeah, so there are things that we can do even as developers uh, that we we can you know be aware of.
Yeah. The developer tools are an interesting subject because, you know, they're, they're very open-ended tools. It's not, you know, uh, an outcome that is expected uh, from these tools isn't like one-to-one. -one. You can use developer tools to make many, many different things. And uh, it's, it's not something you can just like write a simple guide to use, right? You're, um, you're kind of using this to be creative and, and kind of choose your own path. So uh, it, it is a complex scenario to, to try to tackle, but uh, you know, I guess there's, there's things that we can do to make that easier on each other and, and uh, try to provide, you know, context or ways of using the application that uh, um, might fit more comfortably towards people that, for example, use the command line versus those that use, you know, a, a graphic user interface and things like that. The analogy I like to use with uh, developer tools is kind of, is the IKEA versus Home Depot. With IKEA, you get what's called prescriptive guidance. Like if everyone was going to build a bookshelf, you're told, this is how you're going to build this bookshelf. This is like you follow the instructions. There's only one way to do it. And, you know, at the end you have a bookshelf. Uh, do you get to customize it? Well, that might, that might depend. Um, but usually no, you, this is how you're, you're going to put the bookshelf together. But then with, um, the Home Depot side of things is what's more like called uh, descriptive guidance, where they describe how they use things in general. Like, okay, we're going to show like, um, here's a circular saw. Um, S-A-W, for those who can't get my New Orleans accent. Um, <laughs> the, uh, like, here's how they use an, I can't say it now, saw, S-A-W. Um, they'll describe in general how they use this equipment. Um, maybe I should use, like, hammer and nails. But but it, it's not going to tell you how, like, how to cut the wood to be able to put together a bookshelf. It assumes that you already know, okay, what is, like, what you want to build and how you're going to get there. This just tells you in general how to use this particular tool for the task. And so I see DevTools kind of being uh, more on the, the Home Depot side. Of course, we have prescriptive guidance in terms of like uh, scaffolding um, or back in the days, uh, starter kits. But we had, we do, so a lot of times there's, there are like, okay, like file new project. Like I, you know, uh, if I'm creating like, a, like just recently I was blogging about um, creating a, a ASP.NET web um, API. And I, I've never done this before uh, previously. So when I do file new project and it's up and running, and when I hit F5, that's awesome. I don't have to go back in and learn those, uh, like how everything is, is wired up. So, so you can have a, 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 a mix of both. It's just knowing like where is that trade-off or where is that line of, with user education of, okay, here's a, your prescriptive guidance. And then, okay, for the rest of the stuff, where that's going to be more uh, descriptive, being very, very uh, well documented. Th this is what you can, and this is what you can't do. And especially if you can talk about the why behind your designs in terms of uh, your descriptive based tools, then yeah, then you're, the more you can describe like how to use these things, the, the better the, the user will be. And it goes back again to what you were saying earlier. We need to kind of, put ourselves in someone else's shoes and, and kind of imagine uh, what how they're using the tool rather than how we would use it for ourselves or expect them to use it. And, and maybe that involves, you know, getting someone else to sit down and look at it or use it and kind of observe what they're doing. Um, how else would you go about, you know, trying to, to solve that problem? Yeah, so the way I would approach it is, and I, this might be, sounds somewhat, I don't know, controversial will be the right way. I think in my, in grad school, it definitely would have been. Um, I think like, in, in, especially in terms of the developer tools, I don't necessarily have a problem with you as the engineer, developer, PM, whoever on the product itself being like considering like, this is how you would use it because like PowerPoint or Visual Studio or something like that. Uh, GitHub, whatever, like name, um, even Coplex, um, you, you're going to be using this, this application more likely than not, you're going to be using it uh, for yourself um, in the, in the developer tool realm. Of course, if we're talking about like aerospace engineering, or if we're talking about, you know, like uh, medical, I mean, this is a 
that's a totally different conversation. But for in, in, in the scope of develop tools, what I feel is like, like, or is like even PowerPoint to some degree, it's like, well, I am my own user. So it, I, I, I'm, I've always kind of like scratched my head of like, like, well, of course we can kind of design it for the way we would expect to use it, where I draw the line and say what that, so to me, telling people you are not the end user is, is the wrong approach. It's the wrong solution. That doesn't change anything because at the end of the day, we do have to give our own presentations. At the end of the day, we do have to use GitHub. At the end of the day, we do use, you know, Visual Studio. What I think the right solution or approach is, or a much, much better solution approach is kind of like what you were saying before, is talking to other people, getting a diverse set of feedback and seeing, okay, what are their past experiences that have led them to this point that they have like a different opinion on things. Being willing to like get out of your comfort zone and talk to other folks, because the more ways you can make something usable, the just overall, the better things will be for everyone. And I mean, it sounds like empty platitudes or whatever, uh, whatever the phrase is. This is like, I'm, I'm just saying, uh, I forget what that, those are called, but like uh, um, just like those just generic phrases, but it, it actually really is true. And the, the, the wake up call I got, oh, by the way, I, I love this book, um, Algorithms to Live By. And they actually had like a couple of pages about this one point in particular about like these empty platitudes or whatever. They're actually not, they're true. And the, these are the, the, like the research, the science, uh, uh, the math that kind of backs them up. So um, I love that book, Ex excellent book. But uh, I just had to bring that up. But what was my light bulb moment with the uh, writing my own, um, master's project and then making this thing unusable and being for designing it for my own testing purposes. Uh, what, uh, um, I kind of put together a couple of, uh, blog posts, articles, uh, things, uh, or talks, what I've been doing kind of recently is talking about the quote psychology of developer tool, um, usability, what goes wrong when we try to design for our own developer tools. And there's, um, there's a thing about habit formation that when we're, doing a habit, we're unconsciously um, aware of like that we're performing the habit. It's like the, the simplest one is, uh, and if you're driving, don't, don't, don't do this. But, uh, but if you put your hands like on your lap and you think to yourself, okay, do I tie my shoes left over right or right over left? Most people, I would bet almost everyone would not be able to answer because it's not something you think about. It's just something that you do. It's just like a procedure, uh, procedural knowledge. It's just, um, or you see this all the time with like sports or whatever. People get so super good at what they're doing. They have a harder time explaining, you know, breaking it down for a, 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 a novice. I saw this a lot in karate, like with my grandmaster and, and the son who's a eighth degree, eighth degree black belt. I had a, I, I could kind of, I was getting to the point where I kind of see what they were doing, but with a fourth or fifth degree black belt, I could see, okay, I see what I need to do to get closer to the fourth and fifth degree. But at the eighth degree, it was so fluid. I couldn't like physically break down the motions of what they, of what they were doing because it's what's called implicit knowledge. It's knowledge that you can't articulate. Like it's, we do these things, these quote procedural actions or this implicit knowledge all the time. And it's called habit formation. And like, like, like when you hear habit, you're thinking, oh, bad habits, but not all habits are bad. Actually, like being able to walk and talk at the same time or the fact I'm able to, you know, talk to you and I have uh, um, um, like a, a, a pencil in my hand that I'm twirling um, that I promise I won't drop, but it make noise. But yeah, it's a fact that I can do two things at once. And what happens cognitively in the brain is uh, the there's a part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And if you've ever heard of like someone referring to what's called the quote lizard brain, that's the area of the brain that um, they're referring to. It's kind of like the, the more primal um, um, part, the older part of the brain that uh, controls autonomous functions. And uh, yeah, so that allows you to like walk and talk and you know uh, do two things at, at once. And so anytime you're doing a habit, that part of the brain lights up and is activated. And it allows you to, um, um, it, it, it frees up resources, uh, cognitive resources, AKA it means that the front part of the brain, the newer part of the brain, the, um, um, totally blanking out on the, on the name of it, the pre prefrontal cortex 
where you think about, okay, what is the next sentence I'm going to say? By, uh, by having the basal ganglia do the, the more habit um, sort of actions, it allows you to free up what's called cognitive resources. So that's basically, if you ever heard like a UX designer say, oh, this is overloading the, the user, or if we do it this way, it frees up cognitive resources, that's what they're doing. They're saying like, but things that just come naturally, uh, um, if you can have more things come naturally, the better off it will be because it allows the, the user to think about to the next task or explore or get more information about the environment. So at the end of the day, this, the, the, the point of all of this is that science says, or at least in my, like the way I'm looking at this is uh, we are so trained to test our code, even writing tests before we write the code, that I believe that testing is actually a habit. Like we're a very strong habit, and like as soon as we hit F five, we need to verify it, and so the basal ganglia kicks in. So even though I'm consciously thinking, have I designed this correctly for the end user? How would the end user, you know, use it? Is is this right? We're actually that's not what's happening. I think we're actually in the mode of does my code work? And so over time, at least this is exactly what was happening with my own master's project. Over time, I was getting lazier and lazier of testing that I didn't want to get out of my chair. I wanted to minimize the amount of mouse movements. And so I subconsciously designed it for my own testing scenarios. Because again, how could I be aware of what I was doing if habit is one of those um, actions that you can't articulate, like just like tying your shoe. Do you tie left over right or right over left? You don't know when to actually perform the action. So that was my wake up call. That was like this light bulb moment I had when the researcher um, started using my app. So again, I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with with us being our own end user. What, what I do have a problem with is like, it, it can't stop there. We have to be aware of, look, we, are cognitively unable to do two things at once in terms of breaking our software testing habit and also being able on our own to think independently of how a random end user would use it. So please, please, please go out and get diverse set of feedback when you're doing DevTools. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as cut and dry as, you know, this is the way I use it and I'm a developer, so other developers would use it this way as well. Uh, there's a, quite a diverse uh, tool set of developer uh, tools out there where you might develop an API or a software tool or whatever it may be, but you might hand it to a user that's on Windows and they might treat it differently than a user that's on Linux or a user that's on Mac, for example. They, they might all three have a different way of uh, accessing the application or API and you know, one might want to use a command line tool to interface with something versus a GUI tool. And, uh, you know, the whole context of those three users right there is different. Right. Yeah. And the other thing that I can't, that blew my mind with all of this was, um, in taking the psychology courses is that, uh, every, everyone is actually right in what they perceive. Um, perception is a non-deterministic sort of, uh, uh, a process, whereas sensation, the actual engineering process of like, like, like I see the moon on the horizon and that the wavelength hits my eyes. I'm like, oh yeah, th that's the moon. That's or the, the wavelength from the moon hits my eyes. That is an engineering process. That's deterministic. And we know this because we can agree upon, you know, the wavelength, like certain wavelengths representing a, a, a label like red or blue. But what we perceive as red, what we perceive as blue could be completely different. There's no way to know what I call red is what you call, what you call red. We agree on the wavelength, but we have no idea if what I call red is what you actually see as red. It could be your blue. And I was like, wait, 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 time out here <laughs> in this course. It's like, wait a minute. Like, like, like call. So like the, the take home message was color does not exist. And it's, and that just like blew my mind. It's like, wait a minute, if I'm holding like, you know, uh, I, I'm looking at a, a Rubik's cube in front of me or a coffee mug that has a, uh, a, you know, BB-8 on it. It's like, wait, I have a black coffee mug with a, you know, a white BB-8 and it, like the orange, you know, um, uh, markings on it. Like, like, the ha okay, we know that there's three different colors there. 
what are those then if color doesn't exist what is there like like there has to be something there what is this universe there must be some like is there a universal truth of like what it, what is real and not real like like and it just like i had to go and lie down it was just like like do i you know like does this mug exist do i exist and you get into all sorts of like weird stuff that happens with uh perception in the brain and and so but my my big thing was like wait a minute how can we agree on anything if we don't like because no one person is going to have like a, a universal truth in what they perceive and so it's like wow okay you really do have to talk to a lot of different people because we can't even know if what i see is red is what you're seeing is red i mean like what else, what other basis do we have to design things around and so yeah i um oh yeah and then the other thing is um if you still like like you don't believe the color thing or whatever um the moon illusion that blew my mind that you think you're seeing this like beautiful super moon or you're seeing this like beautiful moon on like the horizon. And actually, no, it's actually, um, if not the same size, it's actually slightly smaller than the moon when you look straight up it is completely an optical illusion. And you can go and like re read more about why that is the case or why they think that is the case. But the physics say you do the math. It's like, no, the moon is actually pretty relatively the same size, if not smaller on the horizon. And you're like, no, 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 that is not what my eyes are telling me. And so again, it's just like, wow, okay, um, what is real? What is not real? And so once you start breaking down these, um, again, unconscious biases that you're not, you don't even are aware of, um, you start to realize, okay, it's just so important to get diverse feedback from as many different people as, uh, as possible. And when I say diverse, I'm talking about like, yeah, like you were saying, command line, uh, who's a GUI user, who I'm um, coming from a Mac background, who's coming from a Windows background. Why did you do this thing that you did? Like, tell me, like, this is the most bizarre question that I've ever been asked, but I'm so curious about your experiences that have led you to this point. Like, what have you gone through in life? What have you seen? Where did you, where did the pain come from? Like, what happened that led you to this point of asking, asking this question and maybe there's a way we can incorporate you know this into um the design that there may have been some sort of like um pothole that we didn't know about in um um earlier yeah user perception is really tough to gauge i remember working on a project one time and we ran into a security issue where we noticed a really high volume of people trying to reset their passwords and failing <clears throat> so what we did is we actually started recording uh, what was happening on that form. And we found out that, uh, the form was asking for, um, a username so it could send you a password reset email and people would type the most random things into what they thought a username was. Uh, there'd be things like your full name, you know, first name, first name, last name combined people would flat out type in their email, uh, a lot of those type of things. So we, we changed up the form. And um, I think we changed it from asking for a username to asking for a username and email to try to clarify. And, and that seemed to help out quite a bit. And then uh, we, we kept recording data on it. And we still found quite a few um, errors in people not being able to reset their passwords. And uh, again, looking back at the data, we saw uh, in the username field, we're still seeing like first name, last name combined. And I'm like, oh, oh interesting. like, yeah, you they know, were what, trained. what are we going to do here? Somewhere so, they were trained. Like what, maybe it was the appearance of the form. Maybe it was the context that um, this login system was, uh, was in. Uh, but it, it sounds like uh, they were trained previously that, hey, this is the way the world works. So when they were presented <laughs> with your form, it's like, well, of course, this is the way I would, you know, I would um, approach things. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't want to make any heavy changes on the back end either, because security is really touchy. Uh, and if you provide the wrong type of feedback or um, allow those, you know, essentially you're doing a search for a username or something like that. You don't want that to be too fuzzy because then it can cause a lot of security problems. Uh, so without changing back in code, we started thinking about how can we tackle this, you know, confusion and evidently people see this as a place to enter their first and last name. So why don't we clarify this? So we added two dummy fields to the form. So it went from having just a username to a first name, last name field, and an email field and a username field. And we just threw away the first and last name, didn't collect them. 
That's didn't what I, use them for anything at all. <laughs> that's what I figured you were going. Yeah, you were about to say. But hey, if it makes people, um, they if it makes them more successful and it doesn't take up any any time at all, then like, yeah, it, it sounds like the right approach. Yeah, they weren't required fields, so Even it wasn't <laughs> like a necessary input. But it kind of defined like a space for those people that were either confused by the username or felt like they had to enter their name somewhere. It was like, oh, here's where my first and last name goes. <laughs> and, and all those um, password reset problems disappeared after that. So it's pretty interesting to get, you know, to think about what the context of that person was and, you know, give them that ability to either resolve that need or clear up that uh, information that they could go ahead and fill out the form correctly. Yeah, there is nothing like watching a usability study on, on a product you've been working on or that or, or a product that you designed. It, it's just it's it doesn't matter how simple you have or or, or it, it just it's always amazing to hear like people's feedback or how they uh, how they might approach things or what they are. It doesn't matter what I, I had to do quite a few in 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 grad school, quite a few like design something to get usability feedback on it, of course. I had to do several, several projects, major projects, but, um, but also in my professional career, like I would Coplex or, or just anything else, um, just doing, watching usability sites for something I've put together or just like, Hey, um, or things called cognitive walkthroughs where you don't, it's not really designed. You just completely, you just have like a screenshot of like a potential UX design of it. And you ask them, Hey, well, what do you think is going to happen when you click this button? And it's Recording what they what they say, what they're perceiving on the on the screen. It's just always like fascinating to hear uh, where people are coming from. The ideas that you would never think of, and then when you hear it, it's like, oh, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that's interesting about it is um, people's biases on on these things. Uh, I I wrote an article about that experience with the password reset thing, and I got a lot of. Um, uh, I don't want to say hateful. It's not the right word. Uh, don't know exactly. I'm trying. I'm trying to sugarcoat this, but the the feedback was less than nice <laughs> about the whole experience. I was like, you know, why are people so upset? Like they they were just kind of ranting about how this form could have been so simple, and we ended up adding four fields to something that should be just like one field. And I was like, no, we, we actually collected data on this and, you know, provided a good reason to add these fields to the form. And uh, I, f I found it pretty interesting that people's biases were so strong, like that simple is always better. And even though we had hard evidence that it wasn't, <laughs> people would still defend well, this to actually, the end. One of the UX principles, like they're, they're, I would say maybe there's like 10, 15, you know, uh, uh, um, fundamental principles in UX and you can read more about them and like like the design of everyday things uh, is one book that talks about them but uh, but yeah and, and there's different variants and stuff but one of like the main main things is they say is don't redesign something unless the redesign is superiorly like su superiorly better like su like much 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 uh, uh, better because once you try to change something, if you're not going to get a significant improvement on on it, you're not doing anyone any favors. You're just making them relearn something. And it sounds like I wonder if they're coming from the point of view of like, hey, why would you read? There's something that's already working in their world. Why would you ever want to redesign this? And here you're saying like, no, no, no. We have a far the data shows we have a far superior design. And the data backs this up, so it, we it was um, it was worth it. I think the UX book it was um, uh, oh what it's like uh, it's like something about um, rocket surgery. Uh, it's like a really short. I have to put it. Maybe we can put it as a as a, a link. Um, like doing a quick look on my my bookshelf. I know I, I know I have it somewhere, but it was something about like you something UX about like it's not rocket surgery or something like that. And it's the whole book is designed to be read like in a, like a one hour sitting or in two hours sitting like on an airplane. And then this is one of the things that it, it brings up. But yeah, maybe that's where they were coming from. Like they were like, no, 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 don't, don't. We already have something that's working. And you're like, no, 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 we 
we have the data to show, hey, this is a far superior design for these for these reasons. Yeah, I think the timing had a lot to do with it as well. This is uh, during a period of um, a lot of uh, articles and internet chatter, we'll just call it, um, about, you know, making forms simpler and, you know, things like entering credit card data and, and how to kind of minimize those type of forms to make them, you know, easier and uh, more intuitive. And it kind of hit around the same time as that stuff. Uh, it kind of bucked the trend. So I think it, it kind of brought out the uh, dark side a little bit of <laughs> some folks. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, nonetheless, I thought it was an interesting experience um, after I had posted uh, articles, see what the reactions were yeah, to something like that. that. I think often about UX, like if, um, for what it's worth, I, I often wonder, like, what, going back to school for those three and a half years, getting the UX degree, like, in a way, was it worth it? Because I'm looking at like, okay, what was the ROI personally for me to, to gain all these skills? Because there's something about UX where everything about again everyone is writing their what they perceive and where everyone has an opinion because what they perceive is it's like i said it's, it's non-deterministic everyone what they perceive is correct um but like but when you think about like you know security when you think about like um infrastructure when you're thinking about coding um doing compilers things like that it's much more black and white it's much more you know is it functionally correct it's harder to have an opinion, a UX based opinion versus, oh, I like the color blue for the button versus someone else saying, I like the color red for the button. And so a lot of times I wonder, mm -hmm. well, it's definitely given me a lot of insights into like a lot of other things in life, but I mean, but you're, but it, it, in a way I thought, I guess this is really what I'm trying to say again, developer confessions. Um, I'm, I thought it was going to solve my ability to say, Hey, look, I have a master's degree in this. This is why um, the button should be blue for whatever reason, something like that. I thought it would make give me more empirical mm -hmm. knowledge, empirical evidence to say, hey, look, this is like why it has to be this way. And if nothing else, it made me realize, oh, wait, um, you still have to do the hard work of going and getting all this feedback, collecting feedback, and still mer like coming to like consensus in, to, to some degree. Um, even as a UX designer, you know, I remember working with the Coplex folks who like, they would come with a design. I'm like, um, not quite it. Can you, can you, can you tweak this and this and this for these reasons as a, as an engineer, this is what I would be expecting. And so there was still a lot of back and forth. So I thought maybe I was getting like this gold pass of like, oh, I would just have this automatic knowledge of like making UX issues go away. And all it did was really show me, okay, here's why UX is so hard to get right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even when you said something about coloring the buttons, my mind went to, well, in some cultures, the colors are not the same meaning as others. So, you know, a red delete button in American culture might be acceptable, but for another culture, it may not be the best choice. Yeah. And uh, it's really a rabbit hole you can go oh, down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's even, uh, you know, cultures where uh, shaking your head up and down means no and left, right means yes. <laughs> so it's a big world we live in and, uh, it's, uh, a lot of different perspectives on things. And I think about Slack and, emojis with, with that exact example of like, okay, like, like how do these, I'm just always so curious, like how do these emojis, you know, like translate across, across cultures, just like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, it's been uh, amazing talking to you about this subject. Uh, are there any um, articles that you've written and published? Uh, any talks that you're giving soon? Where can we find you on the web? That sort of thing. I think the, the I, I tell people the the best way to find me on the web is just um, everything that has uh, a username, Sarah uh, Ford, S A R A F O R D. Um, no H. My uh, my parents were too cheap to pay for that extra letter. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Twitter, uh, GitHub. So uh, GitHub slash uh, Sarah Ford. Um, I have a uh, a repo just for what I call the psychology of developer tool usability. And hopefully, yeah, if not some articles, I'll have um, some blog posts coming out. So you can find also follow my blog at uh, SarahFord.net.
Well, I appreciate you making time for uh, the show. And it's been a great conversation. Um, I appreciate you having the time to do this with me. And thank me. you for having me. I feel like I've like gotten so much uh, off my chest about all the mistakes I've done or all the things that uh, <laughs> I wish I could have done better and that have like caused pain for these poor researchers. So thank you for this opportunity to to air like all these uh, uh, um, developer confessions that I had <laughs> inside of me. Oh, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Um, for, for those listening, uh, this is actually the second attempt to record this. Uh, we had some widespread internet outages a couple weeks ago, and we were trying to record, and it kind of failed miserably. Uh, so this is our second attempt, and it looks like it's all going well. Um, and then uh, as far as the podcast, Eat, Sleep, Code, um, we're getting into that season where things are starting to wind down, holidays are coming up. Uh, so we will be closing out the third season of Eat, Sleep, Code and heading into the fourth. So we'll probably have a little bit of a break um, over the next month. Uh, we've already had a little bit of one here uh, due to some of those technical problems. Uh, we're moving some things around with uh, the Teller Developer Network. And uh, we'll be back in 2018, probably around the second week. Uh, and we're bringing back the Developer Digest shows. And we'd like to have your feedback on uh, what what type of shows you'd like to hear next year and what things that, you know, what type of technologies you'd like us to cover. And you can give us feedback at ESC Podcast on Twitter. And we'll take your questions and feedback there uh, for 2018 shows. So we've got maybe one or two more that will air in 2017, and then we'll see you back in the second week of 2018.